This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and thanks for tuning in. Now today on the show, two treasurers, the incumbent treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and a former treasurer, Chris Bowen. They have tapped into a legitimate and genuine vein of discontent in the community, but their solutions, their remedies are fraudulent, just as the charlatans of old who are treating real diseases, but with snake oil. Stay tuned for our story on Chris Bowen's new book called Charlatans. But first, the passing of Andrew Peacock. He was known as the cult from Kuyong, a political career spanned nearly 30 years, a minister in the Gorton, McMahon and Fraser governments, a foreign minister for five years, a two-time federal liberal leader and an ambassador to the United States. As all this indicates, Andrew Peacock was a major figure in Australian political life. He recently died in Texas, aged 82. Well, who better to reflect on his impressive political life than the man who holds Peacock's former Melbourne seat of Kuyong, Josh Frydenberg, who also happens to be the Federal Treasurer and Deputy Leader of the Federal Liberal Party. G'day, Josh. Welcome back to Radio National. Nice to be with you, Tom, and very pleased to talk about the, uh, the great life of Andrew Peacock. Well, your thoughts on Andrew Peacock, you obviously knew him pretty well. Yeah, I did, and I had the, the great pleasure to know him as I took the seat of Kuyong, and he was very good to me. He was a, a generous friend. He was a wise counsel, and he launched my first campaign back in 2010, and he always had a great sense of humour as well. So many people enjoyed his company, and I was among them. And he played an important role in the independence of Papua New Guinea. People don't remember this because it was in the early to mid-70s, right? That's right. And as you know, he held important portfolios like foreign affairs, but also minister for external territories. And he made over 50 visits to Papua New Guinea. He developed a really good relationship with Michael Samare. And in that relationship and his friendship with the uh, Papua New Guinean people, um, he used to leverage uh, um, the ultimate... uh, goal that he had, which was PNG's independence, which came with his support. And I don't think we can overstate the significant role that Andrew had uh, in delivering on that objective. And very much drawn to the United States. He was born there. And of course, uh, throughout his life, he had a very impressive collection of high profile contacts on both sides of politics, both the Kennedys and Bushes, correct? That's right. And Henry Kissinger and Madeleine Albright, he had a great affection for the United States and because of his previous life in Australian politics, uh, he was able to serve us very well and to uh, enter the corridors of power in Washington and that proved to be uh, important for Australia. Yeah, I understand that he actually picked fairly early on in early 92 that Bill Clinton could beat, very well beat, George H.W. Bush, which of course is what happened. And he told, uh, I think, Foreign Minister Alexander Downer in 99 that George W. Bush was the one to watch in 2000. So he obviously had good political judgment of the Washington scene. He certainly uh, knew who were the up-and-comers and and, uh, he identified those people early. I know in Alexander Downer's case, uh, he took Andrew's advice and uh, reached out uh, to a young uh, Mm. George W. Bush uh, who subsequently uh, entered the White House. So that also proved to be important. But if you look at his career, whether it was... In elected politics, uh, where he held the seat of Keong for a remarkable 28 years, uh, whether it was in the Liberal Party, because he was president of the Young Liberals as early as 
uh, age 23 and then president of the Victorian Division, age 26, or indeed whether it was after politics in the United States and the other roles he had. He had a very full life, very productive life, and one that we acknowledge the great legacy he's left. Yeah, indeed. Well, you mentioned he was Liberal leader twice, so 83 to 85. It's always hard leading opposition after your party suffers a massive defeat, as Fraser did to Hawke in 1983. So he was leader in 83, 85, then 89, 90. And he narrowly lost, I think this is important to note, he narrowly lost those two elections to Bob Hawke's Labor, 84, 90. His legacy as a Liberal leader. Well, you're right, Tom. He led us at two elections in 84 and 90 in both elections he got a swing to the coalition indeed in 1990 he won the two-party preferred vote and uh, picked up eight seats in victoria alone but it wasn't enough to get uh, the coalition over the line a bit like what happened to the labor party in 1998 against john howard and also uh, in the 1984 election uh, they hadn't expanded parliament back then and he picked up 16 seats so he didn't get there to the lodge but I think if he did, he, he would have done a very good job as Prime Minister. Yeah, that election, March 1990, we didn't know the results of that election for the best part of a week. Yeah, that's what happens when they, they get close. But uh, Andrew Andrew was always good-humoured about that. And, you know, some people say uh, that he didn't want it as much as others. But, uh, you know, he did put himself forward. He did win the leadership and he went very close. Um, so I think uh, we can look at his achievements while not rising to the top as Prime Minister, his achievements were significant and substantial nonetheless. The distinguished journalist Paul Kelly quotes uh, Peacock's friend and former Chief of Staff, John Ridley, saying that uh, Peacock wasn't sure he really wanted the job enough, not a condemnation. Peacock had passions outside politics, notably the horses. <laughs> well, yeah, that was the only thing that competed with the Liberal Party, of course, his family, <laughs> but, uh, but he loved the track and I, I would speak to him uh, you know, often when he was down at the track and he knew so much about horses and that was a, a, a love shared by other other family members. But I got to speak to him, Tom, just indeed a couple of weeks before his death and mm. uh, he was lucid and he was obviously battling um, significant health challenges, but uh, he's going to be greatly missed by so many Australians. He had, he had and, and it was a great tribute that your former boss, John Howard, gave to Andrew Peacock. Of course, Howard and Peacock had those bitter leadership tussles in the 1980s. Now, Peacock's tenures during that period, it did coincide with the great intellectual, ideological debates on economics uh, between the so-called wets and dries. Now, the wets were generally paternalistic Tories, they're interventionists, whereas the dries were the Thatcherite, free market, reform-thinking uh, figures. With the COVID crisis these days, are we all wets again? Uh, well, uh, as, you, as you may know, I spoke to John Howard during this crisis a number of times, and he was a great source of advice. And I did ask him before I announced with the Prime Minister the JobKeeper program about such a large wage subsidy across the economy. Uh, this is, it certainly wasn't my intention when I went into politics uh, to be uh, to be seeing myself deliver a large deficit and such a, an expansive government <laughs> program. But but John Howard said to me, he said, Josh, at times of national crises, there are no ideological constraints. And to hear that from Australia's second longest serving prime minister and uh, a great uh, liberal in, in John Howard was also some comfort because... We had to deliver that level of support to the Australian people. And if you look at where we are now compared to where we could have been 
Tom. The mm. economy is a lot stronger and Australia is a lot stronger. Yeah, but Josh, last July, you said you drew inspiration from Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan because they successfully prosecuted economic reform in the 1980s. Do you still support a reform agenda? Absolutely. And uh, as we know, um, Margaret Thatcher uh, took over after the, uh, the Labor Party's winter of discontent. And no doubt that would have been what Australia went through if it wasn't if it wasn't for, for Scott Morrison defeating uh, Bill Shorten. So um, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that our government has introduced significant economic reform like the abolition of a whole tax bracket and creating uh, one larger, flatter, stronger tax system, among many other reforms that, you know, I've been trying to cut red tape, whether it's around responsible lending or whether it's uh, introducing a new approach to uh, insolvencies. Um, and these sort of changes are based on government getting out of the way, uh, enabling business to be its best, because at the end of the day, it is the private sector that are the big employers across the country, and we need them to be innovators, we need them to be hiring, we need them to be growing. Sharpening incentives to invest and create wealth That's somewhere. Right. Andrew Peacock would agree. Josh, thanks so much for being on Radio National and paying tribute to Andrew Peacock. Thank you. As Andrew wanted as Margaret Thatcher wanted, as I and many others want, every earner to be an owner, as you remember, Tom. That, that's one of the things that drives us. Josh Frydenberg is Federal Treasurer and Liberal MP for Kuyong, which Andrew Peacock also held. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, around the globe, politics is being turned on its head. The winners are fakes and conmen. And their path to political success, that's paved with dishonesty, disruption, fake news and empty promises. Now, it's true disenchantment with the political class, not just here in Australia, but the United States and Britain especially, and other parts of the West, that angst is widespread. And that's why we're witnessing the rise of alternative and even extremist options for voters. So argues a new book called On Charlatans. It's published by Hachette. Now, Chris Bowen is the author, and Chris, as many of you are aware, is a federal Labor shadow minister, formerly for the health and now climate portfolios. Chris is a former treasurer and immigration minister in the Gillard and Rudd governments. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him back to Between the Lines, which I know he listens to most weeks. G'day, Chris. I do. I do, Tom. I play guilty. Good to, good to join you. <laughs> Firstly, succinctly summarise your thesis. Identify these charlatans. Well, the charlatans are the right-wing populists. And, you know, in the book, I point out that there's a long and noble argument uh, between the centre-left and centre-right, which is based on an agreed set of facts and then different interpretations of those facts. And that both sides, of course, should be respected in this debate. But as your listeners would be acutely aware, that dynamic has changed and now more and more particularly on the right, we see the sort of old right of centre, fiscal conservative, free trader um, being sidelined for a much more virulent right-wing populist. And these I call the charlatans because I argue that they have tapped into a legitimate and genuine vein of discontent in the community, but their solutions, their remedies are fraudulent, just as the charlatans of old were treating real diseases but with snake oil, and uh, this is the fundamental argument that I'm I'm uh, putting, and I've identified the key 
tactics of the charlatans, which go to dishonesty, to hyperpartisanship all the time, to identity politics on steroids, and uh, fear and loathing on climate change. Now, these charlatans and they're the Trumps, the Boris Johnsons, would you put Morrison in that camp? Well, in the book, I do draw an arc. I do, I do say that there's differences, of course. I mean, the three countries are mm. different, the three leaders are different. But I do draw an arc, and there's a continuum. Um, at, you know, at the extremes, you have Erdogan and Orban and, and, and the sort of very authoritarian right-wing, right-wing populists. And then you've got Trump and Johnson and uh, Morrison. Now, I point out, for example, that Johnson is much better on climate than the other two, mm. um, in keeping with the long-standing tradition of the British Conservative Party, to be fair, right back to Margaret Thatcher, who was a, a chemist and believed in the science of climate change and believed in strong policies, whereas Morrison, of course, has um, treated COVID-19 uh, differently to the other two, helped partly by our federation and the very strong role played by the Premier. So the differences, but yes, really the book is about the similarities. Okay, now let's talk about Trump because he's the main guy here really in his yesterday's news. But nevertheless, you say a defining quality of these charlatans has been their failure to keep promises. But Chris, could you argue in in Trump's case, didn't he keep many of his election pledges? I mean, after all, he did pull the United States out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Paris Climate Pact, the Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, Trump moved the US embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. He slashed US company rates. He stacked the judiciary with qualified conservatives. I could go on. So in other words, for all the spin and flip-flopping of modern politics, didn't Trump generally practice what he preached? Well, I could point to, Tom, a range of promises he didn't keep, including repealing and replacing Obamacare and getting the Mexicans to build a wall. Um, But that's not really the main point, I think. Actually, my thesis is not so much that they don't keep their promises, but that they engage in, one, a dishonest analysis of the solutions to the legitimate grievances of people about income inequality, job security, the future of work, the future of communities and suburbs and regions. And secondly, that their dishonesty is not so much because they want to be believed, but because they want to undermine support and trust in public institutions, which suits them. So I would argue, Tom, that Trump is, you know, in my view, the worst president in United States history, uh, but partly because he engaged in a fundamental undermining of faith and trust in public institutions to suit him his own means because he calculated correctly for quite a while that that would suit him politically. You know, uh, you and I are both devoted students of US American political history and we both remember that immortal line from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you're entitled to your own opinions but not your own facts. Well, that's not true anymore. I mean, Donald Trump and his supporters claim they're entitled to their own facts. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a, uh, a Democrat senator, he worked for Nixon and, of course, was a neoconservative in the 70s, but a prominent Democrat senator from New York. He also talked about defining deviancy down, which in a way is your thesis. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't Trump and indeed Brexit a reaction, though, to the failure of those political elites in both Washington and Westminster? Oh, to a degree, I don't disagree with that, Tom. I mean, I'd point out that Trump didn't win a majority of the popular vote, but he did, you know, legitimately win an election under the, under the Electoral College system. I don't dispute that. But the book is not in any way, I would argue, sort of declaring left-to-centre parties, you know, innocent of helping bring this around by not correctly um, responding to many of these grievances. It's in many ways, my argument is to all involved in politics to say, hey, what we can't do is pretend that these grievances of many in the community, suburbs and regions aren't real and legitimate and genuine, 
but take a robust argument to the populace of the right. And, you know, I'd argue, frankly, Tom, this applies equally to parties of the centre-left and the centre-right, you know, the, the, the sort of traditional centre-left party, the Australian Labor Party and traditional centre-right parties, um, who, as I said before, have been sort of focused on fiscal conservatism, free trade, um, open markets and those sorts of things. It's incumbent on both of us who believe in that traditional uh, argument we take different perspectives on it, but we both believe in that traditional argument is in the best interest of, of the people whom we are elected to represent, to take on the arguments of these populists very robustly and to point out that, yeah, sure, they're appealing to legitimate grievances, but their solutions aren't going to work. I mean, uh, yeah. the solutions that they propose, cutting off trade, reducing immigration, those sorts of things, make no positive difference to people in suburbs and the regions. What we need is a much more robust approach to a compact, a Australian context, a compact I think between the Australian government and the Australian people to say we're not going to shirk the challenges of the time like climate change. What we are going to do is put the interests of working people at the forefront of our approach. And you know, I hark back to the old Hawke-Keating approach of um, saying, well, we're going to tackle the challenges of our time. In their case, it was declining national income uh, as a result of decline in terms of trade. But we're going to invest as we do so in superannuation, in Medicare, in greater access to universities, et cetera. That, really, that compact is at the heart of my thesis. Yeah, but would you say that, would you accept that populism is a response to your own brand of politics? Richard King, reviewing your book in The Australian, he argues that your brand of politics is being assaulted by the populace and he identifies your own brand of politics as defined by its progressive pro-market liberalism, the very things you've just been talking about. I didn't find that um, review offensive in any way. I think it was, you'd call it a mildly positive review, although you didn't agree with all my points. But I would argue, yes, yeah, sure, that point is valid, but I'd argue it is equally a challenge in response to the traditional politics of the centre-right. Um, it's incumbent on all of us to deal with it. From my point of view, I want to see the Labor Party win elections and the Labor Party better respond to those uh, concerns in the community. And I think we are a better place to do it and we can do it uh, and we will do it. And we have been you know, doing it. But the lesson is for all of us, I think, centre right, centre left. I mean, you know, Trump has stolen the political party of the people you and I would regard with great respect, the, you know, the George Schultzes and the James A. Mm. Bakers and, you know, all those guys. All those political they're, they're, adults, yeah. They're, they're, that, their political party has been stolen from them. Yeah, but as the circumstances change, I mean, you talk about the post-war Western political world. It's been, you know, it's widely known that it's been long characterised by this left-right ideological divide between capital and labour, but is Western politics increasingly now being defined around identity issues? Yes. yes. But that's a point that, you know, Johnson and, and Trump and Morrison have often made. Yeah, but my point is identity politics is sometimes used as a hammer against my party, parties of the left, saying, oh, you're engaging in identity politics. I say, actually, the people who have engaged in it much more effectively and much more systematically are these guys, the charlatans. I mean, they engage in identity politics by division, by dividing inner cities versus the regions, for example. You know, in Scott Morrison, after he won the last election, referred to the goat's cheese circle and derided people in the inner cities. I, I found that I found that extraordinary. I mean, I don't live in the inner cities. I live in the outer suburbs. But I don't think it's the job of the Prime Minister to demonise a particular segment of, the, of our community. That's identity politics. He was saying to people in regional communities, the inner cities don't get you. Well... I think it's a job of the Prime Minister of the government to, wherever possible, unite the country around a common goal. And I think that identity politics, which is which overlaps again with climate change, because they say to people in the regions, um, you know, this is this is about you and your job and your future, and we can't act on climate change because 
uh, your job so important, instead of bringing together a coherent narrative to say, hey, these changes are coming, these challenges are coming, but we're going to work on it together and we're not going to leave the regions behind and the workers in the regions are going to be the centre of policy, is a much more constructive approach to this, what I would call the divisive politics of identity, which is engaged in by the populace of the right. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Chris Bowen, the Labor frontbencher, is author of On Charlatans. It's published by Hachette. Okay, well, you mentioned the phenomenon of PASOCification. What do you mean here? PASOCification is really the sort of cutting up of the traditional centre-left parties by the populists on the right. There's left-wing populism as well, don't get me wrong, you know, and and that has been a a phenomenon in some countries. But, you know, the more effective and I think therefore the more destructive force has been populism on the right. Okay, let's talk about the the working-class white voters. Chris Bowen, why do you think working-class Australians are voting for Labor in ever smaller numbers? Well, I think you're right to point to the same phenomena that was a very big factor in us not winning the last election. And I think, frankly, we have to acknowledge we have not responded to those concerns of working class voters, their concerns about the future of work, about the future of communities in regional Australia and the suburbs, about the future of you know their kids' chances of getting an apprenticeship or job in a traditional industry. Um, I could point to all sorts of policies that the Labor Party has had in those spaces, and they're good policies, but we clearly haven't emphasised them, um, responded to those concerns in a way which has reassured those traditional Labor voters that we're on their side. And they've been attracted to these right-wing populists who sort of, in many ways, Tom, claim to be outside of politics, you know, claim to be non-politicians. Uh, uh, Trump in his sort of a disruptive way, even though he's, of course, he's a he's a very rich man, you know, sort of saying, I'm not part of the establishment. Johnson, in his own way, with the tussled hair and the sort of very different political persona, and, and Morrison with his baseball caps and his, his sort of non-politicians approach, but they're just politicians like the rest of us at the end of the day, and um, the argument should be about the quality of their policy solutions, and are they taking the countries they are seeking to forward and improving on lots of the people who relied on them? And my very strong thesis is, no, they're not. Following on from what you just said, Chris, you're basically suggesting that these cycles, these political cycles, are being cynically shaped by these charlatans. But is this really a subtle way of offloading blame? Are you overlooking Labor's serious problems here? Let me put this to you. Since 1993, the Keating election over Houston, Labor has won a majority of seats in only one federal election, 2007. Why do you think Labor has forgotten how to win federal elections. That's correct. And and even worse, Tom, from my point of view, our primary vote has fallen in every single federal election since then, except for two. Do you need to change tack here? I mean, Michael Leeson, a veteran union leader, uh, Labor historian, he was on this program recently, Chris, and he suggested uh, that Labor needs to have broader appeal to the electorate. I think Labor tends to talk to itself a lot. And when it talks about true believers, it's really narrow casting to its own narrow support base. And I think Labor need to broaden and it need to do so with respect to tradies and aspirational uh, voters, some of those who you talked about earlier. And in addition, people of faith. And I think Labor has historically been founded by many of the earlier pioneers were prominent Protestant lay preachers 
uh, some Catholics, Catholic influence became more significant. But you don't hear much of that. And I think the Labor Party need to broaden its appeal to encompass people of religious persuasion. And I think that has not been done effectively uh, in recent times. That was Michael Eason on Between the Lines. Chris Bowen, uh, should Labor do more to reach out to people of faith, just as the so-called charlatans have? Uh, yes, um, I agree with Michael Eason's thesis. I've said the same or similar myself after the last federal election, and I thought that was something which we weren't focusing on enough post-election is how we had lost support of people of faith. Now, there were particular issues in an election around marriage equality, etc., and I do think we have to recognise that there are people of, of faith who their inclination is actually Labor, as Michael says. Um, I don't want to see my political party just assume that if you happen to believe in God, that you're going to vote conservative because I, that in my experience, and I represent you know, a very socially conservative electorate, um, I represent an area where faith is very strong. That supported um, uh, no in the same-sex referendum, yeah, correct? That's right. And traditionally have been strong supporters of the Labor Party as well. I've since the election engaged in a number of roundtables with faith leaders in my community, engaged a lot of issues. And, of course, they were promised a religious freedom bill by the government, which hasn't been delivered. Um, and they're very angry about that, by the way. So, you know, these things are an argument that Labor Party can mount, um, but we do have to mount it. But to um, the extent and- that you mount it, though, do you risk alienating the more progressive metropolitan voters who oh, are rusted onto Labor? To me, it's about respect. It's not about necessarily letting one side or the other dictate the way forward. Labor will always be a progressive party, you know, and these debates will always come with their challenges. Right back to when under the Whitlam Labor government with a conscience vote and no fault divorce was introduced. Not many people would suggest we should reverse that change now, uh, but it was controversial at the time. And there are other changes which, of course, will always be controversial. But it's about bringing people with you in that conversation, listening to them, hearing their points of view, taking on board their points of view. And sometimes it gets dishonestly handled. Now, for example, in the marriage equality debate, I had to spend a lot of time reassuring churches and church leaders that same-sex marriage would be recognised under the law, but they would not be required in any sense to conduct a marriage that didn't you know, respect their faith, etc. There were arguments about whether a Labor government would abolish boys' and girls' toilets. That campaign was going around at schools. You know, quite ridiculous. I've got to tell you, it was a big issue in the community because there was quite a dishonest whispering campaign to say, Oh, you know, if Bill Shorten becomes Prime Minister, they don't believe in traditional genders and the boys' and girls' toilets will be abolished. Okay, but let's follow on from that and talk about Anthony Albanese. Final question. He's from the Labor left faction. How does a Labor leader from progressive inner city Sydney, how does he win over those more conservative traditional working class voters in Western Sydney, Queensland Sunbelt seats, where Labor was decimated in 2019? Chris Bowen. Oh, make no mistake. Anthony understands broader Australia. Uh, yes, he lives in Marrickville, but he he's spent a lot of time in broader regional and suburban Australia. He gets it very strongly. Um, so there's no question about that. And uh, who you are is important, but what you do and where you focus your efforts is equally important. Um, is this a challenge for the Labor Party broadly without sort of focusing on any individual? Of course it is. But, Tom, guess what? It's a challenge for the Liberal Party as well. You know, they hold Kuyong and Wentworth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. You know, they yeah, both sides are wedged, aren't they? And and they hold Capricornia and, you know, Dawson. Now, they've managed to do that, but it's a challenge for them. It's a challenge I, I can see that they have navigated better than we have, but it's a challenge for them as well. And, you know, they've lost Warringah 
and at, at various points, and they lost Wentworth for a while. So they too have this challenge to navigate. I, I don't think you can just assume that this challenge is one that's fatal for the Labor Party and therefore means, you know, ongoing Conservative governments. We have to be clever about it. We have to be considerate about it. We have to be respectful about it. But it's a challenge on both sides. The book is called On Charlatans. It's just out by Hachette. And the author is Chris Bowen, the Labor frontbencher. Chris, great to have you on the program again. Always a great pleasure, Tom. That was Labor frontbencher Chris Bowen. He's author of On Charlatans. And we'll put a link to his book on our website. Well, that's all from this week. And if you'd like to hear this or past episodes again, just go to abc.net.au and follow the prompts to Between the Lines or download the ABC Listen app for free or wherever you download your listening. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Hope you tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.